G'day, I'm Glyn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. All these devices and machines and everything we're building these days, whether it's phones or computers or cars or refrigerators, are throwing off data. Information is being extracted out of toll booths, out of parking spaces, out of internet searches, out of Facebook, out of your phone. Big data and algorithms are going to challenge white-collar professional knowledge work in the 21st century in the same way that factory automation and the assembly line challenged blue-collar labor in the 20th century. A hundredfold multiplication in the quantity of data is a 10,000-fold multiplication in the number of patterns that we can see in that data. This just in the last 10 or 11 years. This, I would submit, is a sea change, a profound change in the economics of the world that we live in. The great news for us as well is that it's the way that we can transform the American criminal justice system. It's how we can make our streets safer, we can reduce our prison costs, and we can make our system much fairer and more just. Some people call it data science. I call it moneyballing criminal justice. Today, the world's most valuable resource is no longer oil, but data. Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and Alphabet, Google's parent company, are the five most valuable listed firms in the world, collectively taking in over 25 billion US dollars in the first quarter of 2017 alone. Whether you're going for a run, watching television, browsing online, or even just sitting in traffic, virtually every activity creates a digital trace, and you are being watched. Our connected, always-on world has generated huge volumes of data, but also heightened concerns. At the cost of our privacy, this data economy brings new opportunities, particularly in public policy. Big data is now being used to fight obesity, to predict crime hotspots, to help NASA map dark matter. In today's episode, we explore the potential and the challenges of big data for public policy. And joining us is an alumnus of the University of Melbourne who's working on the frontier of data science. He was twice placed on the Forbes Top 30 Under 30 list, and his data analytics company has been backed by some of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley. Anthony Goldblum, founder and CEO of Kaggle, joins us on the line from San Francisco. Anthony, welcome to this episode. Thanks for having me. Anthony, you had the foresight some years ago, back in 2010, famously to leave a comfortable job at the Treasury and instead code Kaggle from a small apartment in Sydney. What does Kaggle do and why are you excited by its potential? Sure. So um, I'll tell you how Kaggle started out and and we've opened our aperture from where we started, but we started out running um, machine learning competitions. And so a company or a a government um, would put their data up on our website and uh, we had a community or have a community of data scientists, statisticians, machine learners who compete to build the best algorithm on a given problem. we actually, our community just, uh, I think last week, ticked over a million. So there are a million people who spend part of their spare time browsing our website, taking our data sets, and um, uh, possibly competing in our competitions. You know, since then, um, we've expanded. Um, so we not only r- run machine learning competitions, but if you're a, a data scientist and you're looking for somewhere to run your algorithm, we provide a, a tool called Kaggle Kernels, which is a cloud-based workbench uh, for doing your data science. So you can, instead of doing it on your local laptop, it 
kind of like Google Docs, but yeah. uh, for data science, you have your, your analysis wherever you go. Uh, and we also have an open data platform where could be researchers, governments, companies share data sets. And, and so it's like a sort of a vibrant, vibrant library of, of open data sets that uh, anyone can share and collaborate on. So yeah, we've expanded from that initial starting point of running machine learning competitions. So what was your experience uh, setting up a company in Australia? Yeah, so, so I would say I was extremely naive when Kaggle started. Uh, my first job out of college was working at the Australian Treasury uh, and then after that the Reserve Bank of Australia. And so I really knew very little. And I think one thing that was an issue for me at the time, uh, there certainly wasn't that much of a startup scene or a tech scene in Australia. So there weren't a lot of places to get great mentoring. Um, and so I think one of the big big advantages I had in moving to Silicon Valley was that you, you sit in a cafe at the city and you just listen to the conversation next to you and it's about customer acquisition costs and growth strategies and um, Haskell versus Rust, uh, you know, different program, pro- programming languages. It's just like this city pulses um, technology and startups. Um, and so as a first-time entrepreneur, I found it much easier to, you know, somebody who really didn't have much of a background in um, in running a company, uh, easier to get mentoring. I think that a couple of things have changed since. I think the, the startup scene is much, much more developed now than it was. Um, we've had huge success in Atlassian. Uh, which is a world-class company that has a lot of people in Australia who grew up with Atlassian um, now have the experience of working in a company that's ultimately turned out to be very successful. Google has a very big office in Sydney, so you have a lot more um, people trained and having had the experience of uh, going on a, a, a kind of a wild tech adventure. We have more capital in Australia. There's Square Peg uh, Capital among others that are funding companies. And also Kaggle was acquired by Google three months ago. So I now, now work at Google and I'm very excited to see Kaggle at Google. If if at some point down in the future uh, I do another company, I actually think there are advantages in doing it uh, from Australia. Um, one advantage is the war for talent is probably not quite as acute. Um, the cost of talent is probably not quite as high. And so I think there are, you know, coming back to Australia as an experienced entrepreneur, but potentially down the track, I actually think that there are some advantages to operating out of Australia. Indeed. And so given your emphasis on how important the ecosystem is to have experienced entrepreneurs like you um, back in the system is going to be very important for the future. How far were you in your journey when you made the decision to move to the United States? So I started working on Kaggle uh, initially actually nights while I, I was working at the Reserve Bank. And that was in, uh, let's say, early 2009. And I think I calculated that at the rate I was going, I'd probably finish Kaggle in about 2040. Um, it was just taking too long. Initially, all, all I all I was doing was coding, so I was building the website. And I eventually, so I left the job at the RBA in July. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, did a, a really nice roots trip with my grandparents. After that, so it was a month of not really focusing on Kaggle. Um, I came back and I proposed to my wife just so I could lock in an income source. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And then, then coded up Kaggle, got it launched in April of uh, 2014, actually just after our wedding, and then started spending time in America probably a year after launching Kaggle. So Kaggle was going well well enough that there were some signs of life. It had some some potential. I started going to the U.S. Uh, as a tourist uh, mm-hmm. to speak at conferences, quote unquote tourist, yes. closed business deals. Um, we recruited somebody in America, and. Um, and then moved to the U.S. full-time about January of 2012. And I would also say that 
moving to the US was was the time when Kaggle switched from being kind of a, a, a side project that I thought could be a nice lifestyle business to something that um, I really thought had the chance to change the way that data science and machine learning gets done. So you were there on the cusp of an important developing industry. How big is business analytics and predictive modeling today as, as an industry? The market for business analytics, predictive modeling and machine learning is a $41 billion market. But what's hidden inside that number is, and it's growing at, I think, around 8% per year. So it's a big market. It's growing fast. Um, but the really exciting thing that's happening uh, in the market at the moment is there are some major shifts which which leave open a, a, a big business opportunity. So it used to be that compute was mostly done on-premise and you used companies like Oracle and Teradata and companies like that uh, to do a lot of your business analytics. Uh, there's a big shift towards the cloud. It used to be that you used uh, kind of predictive modeling statistical techniques for a lot of this work. Uh, so things like logistic regression, linear regression, um, even just basic pivot tables and things like that. Now with a, a set of new techniques, machine learning techniques, particularly gradient boosting machines and, and more recently deep neural networks, there's a fabulous set of things that you can do now that you couldn't do uh, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, so the power of these techniques is much greater than it was. And so there's also a business opportunity because a lot of the legacy players that I mentioned earlier are not really the world's best at these new techniques. And, you know, companies like Kaggle and our parent company, uh, Google, and you know, others like Amazon and, and uh, Microsoft are far, far, far stronger uh, in these new techniques. And so we're aggressively grabbing market share. It's not just that the market's growing, but the, the major players in this market are also changing. You certainly have some remarkable talent. You mentioned the data competitions. One of the famous ones for NASA, your data scientist solved a problem in a week and a half that NASA have been looking at for a decade. Does this give us some sense of the power of open source data? Our competitions are a very efficient way to get people who are very strong with machine learning and data in contact with problems that they might not have otherwise known about, but they have the ability to to solve. NASA was taking a um, data set of galactical images and they were trying to measure the ellipticity of galaxies very precisely. If you can measure the ellipticity of uh, galaxies very precisely, you can um, use that to basically infer the dark matter distribution of the universe. So it was quite a challenging problem, a problem they cared a lot about. And actually the first person to make a major breakthrough on that problem was of all things, his profession was a glaciologist, which I'd, I'd never heard of a glaciologist, but um, he was doing a lot of image recognition, which is the branch of machine learning that was required for the NASA problem in his glaciology research, because what he was doing was taking uh, satellite images and looking for the edges of glaciers algorithmically. And so it just so happens that the techniques that he was using to find the edges of glaciers algorithmically were a good fit for measuring the ellipticity of a galaxy. I like that story because um, I always say that he was looking from space down at Earth, you know, from satellite images <laughs> down at, at glaciers, and the competition required him to look from the ground up. So he sort of just had to turn the problem on its head. Uh, so it's a nice, nice story, that one. Can we talk for a minute about uh, big data and government? And I know you're coming at it from a business perspective, but one of the key users of big data is government. And there's a lot of excitement about the opportunities to think again 
about some public policy interventions. Can you give us some sense of how your company and others have been working with government? So we do a bit with government, actually working with NOAA at the moment. NOAA, uh, the acronym is National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. So this is one of the big government departments in in the US. Um, And they're really responsible for two things. The National Weather Service, which is the US's equivalent of the Bureau of Meteorology, and they're also responsible for policing fisheries. Um, And one of the key tasks they have to do in policing fisheries is keeping track of how many uh, of different type of, you know, they, they care about conservations, how many of different ty- di- different types of species um, exist. And that can be a very tedious manual count. Um, we're working with them at the moment to take aerial photographs. I think they're taken in Alaska. I forget exactly where. Um, and building algorithms that automatically count the number of sea lions uh, based on those aerial photographs. And so it's just taking something that some people used to do manually uh, and automating it. We recently did a fascinating project with with um, the Nature Conservancy, fishing is not well monitored at all. It's extremely expensive to send out somebody on a fishing boat to make sure that uh, there isn't illegal fishing happening. Um, and actually, it's quite a dangerous job because fishing boats are often not the, you know, they're quite quite rough, rough places. There are stories of people getting kidnapped or bribed. And so the idea was with the Nature Conservancy, we tackled this problem where you took put a camera on a fishing boat um, and you automatically count and classify the fish that are being caught. So are they going above their quota or are they catching bycatch or, or species that they shouldn't be catching? I, I guess I'm thinking about um, oceans at the moment, which is why I came, came up with these two examples. <laughs> but they're ex- examples of kind of things that public policy had a hard time dealing with historically that these new machine learning te- techniques are able to help us address. A lot of policy work by government relies on sampling techniques such as household surveys to gain insights into the population. You're describing a quite a different and automated approach to that. Are governments perhaps using old tools in a new setting? Yeah, I, do, I, I wish I could remember where this, this research was, but there was research done out of one of the US universities um, replacing the census with, I guess, other data sources. So you could imagine um, doing things like taking satellite images and counting people or cars or houses. So there are, there are a lot of amazing data sources uh, that didn't exist in you know, 1783 or whenever the US Constitution said that we have, have to have a census every 10 years. So there are definitely ways to reboot the census for the for the big data world. And just more generally, I think it's a great opportunity for the Australian Bureau of Statistics. It's a great opportunity for the various statistical bureaus in the US uh, to look at um, having a less people-intensive uh, approach to gathering statistics and having those statistics be released in, on more of a real-time basis. There is a huge opportunity that is probably not really uh, being taken at the moment to reboot the way national statistics are done. People are talking very excitedly about perhaps addressing wicked problems using big data. So some of the most challenging issues around the planet, obesity and climate change, for example, Is there a role for data in working through these sorts of choices and helping inform policy solutions? I would say in some of these cases, not so much climate change, but perhaps health-related issues like obesity, um, some of the more classical techniques may be more useful. So randomized controlled trials are an incredibly effective uh, tool for public policy studies. And I'm not sure that uh, machine learning techniques have much to add above and beyond randomized control trials. So there, there may be ways that machine learning could help at the edges, but I think that making good use of randomized control trials is going to be more powerful for a lot of public health issues. Moving from policy to politics, 
data source from voters is clearly becoming an important player in campaigns. Sometimes in interesting policy ways, the Pirate Party in Iceland, for example, has been a leader in this and Lab Hacker and eDemocracy are two programs that encourage people to make proposals to representatives, work through them to improve bills and policies. But there's also a, an interesting engagement by data in election campaigns. What's been the discussion between the big data industry and politics? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the Obama campaign uh, in particular did a good job of using data science, machine learning techniques to do things like micro-targeting voters. You, you have a certain number of people who are willing to knock on doors for you and you don't want to send them to doors where they're definitely not going to vote for your party or they're definitely going to vote for your party. Um, but rather, so in the Obama case, they don't want to vote for um, diehard Republicans nor diehard Democrats. What they want to do is they want to find the people who are swing voters um, and spend the energy knocking on those doors. Actually, the second Obama campaign in particular had a huge number of people from Silicon Valley uh, sort of volunteer. And actually, quite a few companies came out of that campaign that have gone on to be very successful. So some of the technology they developed um, for that campaign, they've gone on to make companies out of. I mean, there's a company called Optimizely that uh, does A-B testing. There's a company called Civis Analytics. Uh, the founder was the chief analytics officer for the Obama campaign. Um, actually, interestingly, I would say this current campaign turned that on its head. A lot of the same people who contributed to the Obama campaign um, were also uh, contributing to the Clinton campaign. But uh, it's interesting because um, I think the Trump campaign was quite a lot less sophisticated. As I understand it, they, they did have some efforts in this regard, but it was not nearly as sophisticated an effort. And I think it, the Trump ran a very different campaign and one that you know, with all the sophistication of, of the Clinton statistical machine, the Trump campaign showed that there are other approaches that, that can be effective in winning. At least, and certainly in winning the Electoral College vote. And it's very interesting you say that because, of course, on the Trump side, there are uh, companies involved or people involved who are very proud of, as they perceive it, the role of data in helping Donald Trump become the president. Uh, Cambridge Analytica is the one mentioned uh, quite often. And we've got a short clip from Alexander Nix, who's the CEO of Cambridge Analytics, speaking at a presentation in September 2016, so just weeks before the presidential election. Communication is fundamentally changing. Back in the days of Mad Men, communication was essentially top-down. That is, it's creative-led. Brilliant minds get together and come up with slogans like Beans Means Heinz and Coca-Cola is it, and they push these messages onto the audience in the hope that they resonate. Today, we don't need to guess at what creative solution may or may not work. We can use hundreds or thousands of individual data points on our target audiences to understand exactly which messages are going to appeal to which audiences way before the creative process starts. Can you say something about psychographic profiling, which is where Cambridge Analytica made its name? The ultimate goal for a lot, for a lot of these efforts is, as I said, micro-targeting. What they will often do is they will um, buy data sets um, and they'll buy data sets that really range from really whatever they can get hold of. So they might be able to buy data on your magazine subscriptions. They might be able to buy data on what kind of car you drive. They might be able to buy data on you know all sorts of things. And so once they have assembled a, a large 
large large data set, they can find some interesting relationships uh, that might help them uh, determine your political leaning. So, for instance, if you have a big, heavy four-wheel drive or SUV, as, as it's called in America, uh, that might point in the direction of you being a Republican voter. But then if you also have um, four kids, that might steer a little bit towards you being a, a Democratic voter. And the more of these what are called signals that can be assembled, the better the micro-targeting is at, at pinning down your likely um, political persuasions. And as I said, um, the ultimate is to pick people who are on the fence. A well-landed message can swing them in one direction or the other. So data modelling helps you to connect people and then move them to action. Donald Trump's chief strategist, Steve Bannon, sat on the board of Cambridge Analytica and one of its key backers, Robert Mercer, was a major donor to the US president. Uh, obviously, this is a very sophisticated use of data, but is there something sinister we should fear in this development? Yeah, I would say the, the, the area where big data gets a little bit murky is when data is being sold without your knowledge. Um, so uh, companies like Google, I think, are very very transparent. You can see what data they have about you and have some visibility into how it's used. There are a lot of um, data brokers out there who will they're collecting data about you and they will sell it. Um, without your knowledge. And so your data sets about you can end up um, in the hands of, you know, whether it be political campaigns or um, places where you might be surprised how much they know about you. To the extent that there are sinister elements of the quote-unquote big data revolution, it's, it's some of what is happening with your data that you're not aware of. And indeed, the interaction between data and security services is, is very patent. Uh, one of the revelations from Edward Snowden is just the level of information that was held by security services. So isn't privacy, you've just touched on the fundamental issue when you considered how connected the world is and how we as citizens can't know what the full range of data that's been collected on us. You know, I think some companies handle it better than others. As I said, I think Google is really an exemplar here. Yes, they collect a lot of data, but you you have the ability to interrogate the data that, that is collected on you. Um, and, and so I think the areas where there really is a breach of trust or a breach of privacy is when things are being done with your data um, that you have no knowledge of. So how good is government at understanding the implications of data and protecting its citizens when technology is moving so extraordinarily quickly? It's actually a big challenge. So the way I've heard it described, which I quite like, is that you know, tech companies, Silicon Valley, uh, iterates on a three-month cycle. Traditional businesses iterate on a five-year cycle, and government iterates on a hundred-year cycle. Um, it's very difficult. Government is trying to regulate in a world where they're not able to attract the best talent, uh, who really understands how data science, machine learning, uh, a lot of these new technologies work. And um, so, in a lot of cases, you're finding. Uh, regulation is slow to update. When it does update, it ends up updating in ways that are not necessarily um, in anybody's best interests. We're in a, a world that is probably changing faster, I mean, arguably changing faster than it's ever changed before. Um, a lot of the, the most talented people are not finding government a particularly attractive place to go, and it makes it hard for governments to keep up. And I'd just like to go to a, a Slight variation on that, but a, an interesting question around privacy as well. Big data is being used by police forces to anticipate trends. In California, where you are, predictive policing has seen robberies decline by a quarter following the use of the PredPol policing software. Anthony, this certainly shows the power of big data, 
But is there a risk of targeting certain social economic groups? Yeah, one big hot topic in um, data science machine learning circles at the moment is bias in algorithms. Um, and how do you build algorithms that are not biased? Uh, this is actually also happens to be a, a hot area of academic research. It's a really tough one. Um, if you feed in biased data into an algorithm, the algorithm will have will continue to have a a bias. Yep. And so the, the only real solution to this is um, having balanced unbiased data sets. Data science machine learning is not magic. It is only as good as the data you feed it. Revenues in big data business analytics are expected to grow from the $41 billion you've indicated to perhaps $200 billion or more by 2020. I know it's hard to predict the future. Where do you see, though, the big data industry heading? So Kaggle has a million users today. I'd like to see us be 10x that, uh, 100x that um, in the coming coming years. So um, actually universities like the University of Melbourne have a huge role to play here. There is a massive shortage of data scientists uh, and, and machine learners. And it's a very rewarding profession at, at the moment, a very lucrative profession. And so I think for data science machine learning to reach its potential, for it to drive a large number of the decisions that each of us make every day or that, sorry, companies make every day, um, we need we need to solve this talent shortage. If we do solve this talent shortage, um, we will start to see algorithms uh, starting to um, help make business decisions uh, more frequently and more precisely uh, than we can do as humans, which does obviously open up a, a, a scary question if algorithms are capable of doing things like uh, analyzing us as we go through security, uh, counting sea lions from an aerial survey. There's a question around jobs and what, what will people do when a lot of the jobs that, that we currently do are, are taken over by algorithms. And that is genuinely something that that I think a lot about and, and worry a lot about. And I, d I don't know, you know, given the pace of innovation, historically, when we face big waves of innovation, humans have been able to retrain and we're very flexible and, and, and do things that, that technology can't do. Um, the one potential difference here is that the change is coming so quickly. Um, do we have enough time to retrain? You know, this is not like the Industrial Revolution, which um, took decades and decades and decades to unfold, but rather it's happening. The, the, the progress you can measure in years, not in decades. There is certainly a scary dimension uh, to the rise of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Anthony, as we're talking about industry, one of the arguments that's beginning to emerge in the academic and other literature is around monopolies around whether we're going to see a handful of tech companies dominating an industry and others finding it very difficult to come in. And that's raised questions about whether the antitrust responses of the early 20th century will need to be thought about in terms of technology. How do you respond to that emerging discussion? Yeah, I think that tech industry is quite different to the oil, oil and gas industry, for instance. You know, technology tends to create natural monopolies, but those natural monopolies don't tend to last for very long. The last generation of great tech companies were the Oracles and the SAPs. This generation, um, it's Google, Amazon, uh, Facebook, Microsoft. The next generation may be a company that hasn't even been founded yet. So there's so much change in the technology industry uh, that you're, you're a king for a while, 
but you're only a king until the next big wave of technology comes. So I think that um, policy and antitrust has much less of a concern today than in the standard oil days because it's just just the pace of change in the in the industry will mean that the current giants end up being disrupted without antitrust having to intervene. You mentioned the challenges for the public service and public sector in understanding what data makes possible, what sort of training and upskills going to be necessary in order to make sure that both sides of the equation know what, what they're doing? One problem that the public sector has is is um, it really operates as an environment that is not super conducive to the kinds of people who the kinds of people who uh, do well in the tech industry are not necessarily the same kinds of people who are going to be attracted to a role in the public service. People who uh, tend to do well in, in the tech industry are restless and and they want you know they want to be constantly changing things and um, and the government as I said tends to change quite slowly. There are some bright spots. Um, there's the U.S. Digital Service, which is a uh, very fast-moving part of the U.S. government that uh, helps implement the latest in technology in areas of the U.S. government. And so looking at uh, things like the U.S. Digital Service, it's a nice example for other governments to follow. And finally, you mentioned the possibility, very welcome, that, that you and others might use Australia in the future as the base for startups. But what would need to change here to make Australia a very attractive place for companies such as yours? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot has changed in Australia um, uh, anyway, I mean, for somebody like me, um, it's attractive to come back to Australia because we have great universities. We ha- we turn out great computer science students, um, and they don't have the job opportunities necessarily that they would have if they were at a Stanford or a Berkeley. For me personally, it's attractive to work on a company out of Australia because you ha- have access. Uh, to that talent without having to compete with the Googles and the Facebooks. Um, I think for somebody who was like me six, six or seven years ago and just getting started, really the ability to work in tech companies and get a bit of a, um, you know, get the mentoring you need um, is really important. And the only way to get that is to have other successful companies grow up in Australia. And I think that is starting to happen. You have the Atlassians of the world, as I said. And so that ecosystem is already naturally building. Anthony, it's been great talking with an Australian graduate who's providing leadership in such a fascinating and demanding industry. And thank you for encouraging today's students to think about maths and computer science and machine learning as really important areas. Anthony Goldblum, founder and CEO of Kegel, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Nice to make the connection. I've got many emails signed by you and maybe even my degree is signed by you. So. <laughs> the series producer of The Policy Shop is Owen Hassey, with co-producers Ruby Schwartz and Paul Gray. Audio engineering is by Gavin Nabar. This podcast is licensed under Creative Commons. Copyright, the University of Melbourne. 2017. If you want to find out more about this subject, check out the documentary The Human Face of Big Data.